welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. And look, I know I'm switching it up, but bear with me. This episode is brought to you by Anderson Hauser which they are the leading supplier of measurement instrumentation with a full offering of process solutions for flow, level, pressure, analytics, temperature, recording, and digital communications, and much more. Their excellence lies within their localized USA manufacturing and expansive representative network for product and application expertise in your local area. Learn more about Anderson Hauser at us.andres.com. The link will be in the show notes. Awesome. We'll kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Bill Melton, North American Sales Director of Measurement and Production Solutions at Technip FMC. Bill is an experienced business leader with strong sales, technical, and operational background in the oil and gas industry. He has extensive hands-on knowledge in building and developing a diverse team to execute on complex strategies to maximize returns and strengthen business relationships. Bill holds a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Texas, along with an executive MBA from the one and only Rice University Jones Graduate School of Business. Bill, welcome to the show. Justin, glad to be here. Excellent. How's everything in your world today? Man, everything is going well. It's summer, so it's bright and sunny and looking forward to getting outside and you know, spend some time with some customers. So nice. everything's looking up. Hey, isn't it? It always is. Yeah. You know, I'm glad everything's going good in your world today. And just for the audience's knowledge, it's always funny. Like we were talking before, you know, where I'm at, we moved into a new office. I was ready to kick things off, excited to do a podcast in my new office. And all of a sudden my docking station kind of, you know, it went kaputs, if you will. And so Bill was patient. So I just want to thank Bill for his patience over here. I was trying to get my laptop fired up, but you just never know. Technology has a funny way of malfunctioning right before you're supposed to use it. Anyway, I digress. Except for my technology. Let's. Well, let's yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, not mine. No, no, no. And everyone never. else's. Everyone else's. Somehow Technip FMC has found a way to never have that happen, which I commend you. And perhaps today, maybe they can share or Bill can share some of his trade secrets because everyone wishes they could be on that wavelength. So you said it's nice and you're looking forward to summer. Down here in Texas, it's getting pretty hot and it's been nice you know, for the last few months. Where are you joining from today? So I'm actually up in Denver, been up in Denver for close to five years. So we're not dealing with the mosquitoes and humidity the same way that you all in Houston are. So mm. looking forward to you know, a little bit of time in the mountains and maybe a little bit of fishing. And then I'll actually be moving down to Houston later this summer, just in time for it to be really super hot and humid. Well, the only thing that would make that even better is if your wife was like six months pregnant, which I have no idea if she is, or even if you're married, but if you were, that would be even worse. But if not, then it's not going to be too bad. Yeah, no, we'll make it happen. <laughs> nice. Actually, when we moved to we moved for essentially from Canada down to Texas in, I'll never forget, July 17th is when we closed on our house. And yeah, it was the year 2013. It was quite a while ago. It was the year that we had like 200 and some days without any rain and it was hot, but I loved it coming down from Canada. You know, my family spends a lot of money to come to places like this. So hot and humid is kind of like vacation weather for me. So I don't know, where are you from? Oh man. So I moved around constantly. So Contrary to probably most people that are listening, right? I'm not an oil field kid. I'm not an army kid. I joke that I'm a professor's brat. And so 
but my dad was a professor with authority issues, right? So never made a <laughs> tenure track anywhere. So we kind of bounced from university town to university town. So okay. Florida, spent years in Roswell and Hobbs and Carlsbad area. And then Northern Colorado, kind of between Greeley and Fort Collins, West Texas out by Amarillo and Canyon, went to high school in Iowa, close to Iowa State, and then went down to school in Austin, as you referenced. So Right. So tell me, I mean, growing up, where was your favorite place that you ended up living? Oh, man, that's so tough because you don't have perspective when you're a little kid. You're like, I'm just happy I get to go play and, and do whatever. Yeah. Well, what was your favorite memory? Like if growing up, like, is there anything that kind of stands out that was like, you know what? That was like a very pivotal moment or something that I'll never forget living in XYZ. You know, so for the most part, having started growing up in the South and the Southwest, when we moved up here to Colorado, probably like fourth grade, right? The first time we had legit snow, not just like a little dusty but legitimate snow where you could go out and make snowmen and snow angels. Like that just blew my mind. So that was probably one of the coolest things just from, Oh wow. Things are so different here. So really enjoyed that experience. And then that summer, my grandparents took me to Yellowstone. Yeah. If anyone's ever been to Yellowstone, it's just absolutely amazing. You know, Buffalo on the side of the road, people stopping to get trampled, hot springs, sulfur smell. It's, you know, just prep you for life out in the field, right? That smell of sulfur. Woo! Yeah, no kidding. Well, <laughs> well, hopefully you're not smelling too much sulfur egg smell out in the field. However, those are all beautiful areas. And yeah, there's something about, you know, children or kids seeing snow for the first time. It's such a magical experience. And it's, you know, folks like myself growing up in Canada, it's just something we take for granted now. When we do, you know, maybe once every year, get a snow on the ground, our kids go nuts. And It just makes you realize, you know, you can't take things for granted growing up and being surrounded by beautiful environments like that. That's really neat. And before we keep going, I just want to take a moment to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and it delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well-pad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. All right, back to you. So we're going to talk about some cool technology, you know, with what you're involved with, which we'll get there. But first, I do want to start things off. And I don't know if you've listened to an episode or not, but if you haven't, that's totally cool. But I do have a question that might get you kind of thinking on your toes. So what core belief have you changed your mind on over the last couple of years? And this could be anything related to energy, personal views on life, or really anything that comes to mind. You know, so I would say, Justin, the one that just pops to my mind is, you know, as all of us have started to work from home and kind of manage through the trends, the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? the amount of what we can do digitally and just respond to keep the same level of effectiveness continues to stand out to me. And I look back at what we do in the field as an industry, and it's like, man, you know, we run so much stuff on sticks and spreadsheets like, <laughs> and we could be so much better than that, right? There are so many better tools that open doors for different people to be in the business for more efficiency, for better stakeholder engagement. So for me, you know, I continue to look at, you know, people say digital and it gets to be a buzzword, but it really does excite me that man, there's just so many things we could fundamentally do better if we just embrace that opportunity for change and got rid of the sticks and spreadsheets. Wow. You know, and so there's a lot to unpack there in a good way. I was very fortunate enough 
to moderate a panel discussion last week here in Houston. And the topic was how by increasing efficiencies in the field through technology and digitalization, we can ultimately increase the financial health of our business by reducing day sales outstanding. And basically what all that means is- CSOs are the worst. Exactly. And so we had a panel of, we had one CEO and two CFOs. So of course, you know, we got pretty in the weeds, but it was just the conversation. And then even with the group that was there attending, it was just a fascinating topic with lots of good ideas and thought. But the one thing that you had referenced was change. And I think that a lot of organizations struggle with change management. And, you know, even internally within the company that I work with, you know, we've gone through a lot of change, especially since, I mean, really the biggest driver started back in, I would say probably 2014, 16 downturn. All of a sudden, to me, that's when a lot of this whole, the buzzword, you know, innovation, digitalization, even machine learning, like all that stuff really started ramping up. And it's still to this day, and you mentioned spreadsheets, there's still companies that run on spreadsheets and it's mind boggling that we can take a drill bit and drill, you know, four miles and get to within a perfect target, you know, but then we're still running things off spreadsheets. It's just, it's exciting because it presents so much opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that, right, finding the right tools is part of it. But then to your point, it's that commitment to change, right? The boss Mm -hmm. can't send me a spreadsheet and say, hey, you know, fill out this spreadsheet. It's like, come on, man. It's in the database. It's in this tool. It's wherever it is. Like we've got to take advantage of the tools that we're spending money on too. Right. And not necessarily regarding Technip FMC, but can you speak a little bit on change management? And I mean, you're in a role now that obviously, whether you advise or manage, you have a pretty good grasp of what's going on. And if leadership wants to make change, how do you as a leader or someone within the industry that's been around for so long, how do you kind of approach change to get support from multiple stakeholders? Can you kind of touch on that? So my biggest and fundamental belief is, right, it starts from the boots on the ground, right? It starts from the men and women who are out there swinging hammers, driving trucks and whatever else. And they generally know what needs to happen to make the business safer, better, faster. Right. Right. And so when you take that energy that they have, if you engage those folks, again, fill on the soapbox, right? If you open up, like everyone out there has a good idea, right? Because everyone's got a pain point. Yes. And if you start nixing some pain points, you start building momentum. And it's like, you know what? The guys in the office, you know, the guys behind the scenes, the guys higher up the chain, and they care, right? And when everyone believes they care, everyone's pulling in the same direction. And the bigger change initiatives, right? Digitalization, whatever it is, organizational restructures, those things build momentum because you've addressed the need at the front line and had them buy in first. Mm. Right. Because if I don't do anything but ever tell you, Justin, get this done and do like I tell you. And then I come and I tell you, I've got something really important. Do you care? No. You're there for a paycheck. Sure. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Bill will rotate off and he'll disappear in two years. I don't care. (laughs) Right. But if you know that Bill cares and you know that the company cares, then you're going to be pulling with us when we have to ask for some of those big changes for some of those leaps of faith. Mm. That's really interesting. And I think that kind of stresses the importance of making sure that as an organization that you do allow and you create an environment where people feel like they're contributing to the success of the company right from the ground up. That's one thing that I think is extremely important. And you know, then that gets into organizational culture. 
but those are very good points. And I would suspect that, you know, with, within your group and even just everyone within your company, it seems like that happens very effectively. And so I applaud Technique FMC because I interviewed and I know a lot of folks that have been there for a long time. It's like kind of once they're there, they love it. And I think that just plays into, you know, what you're saying. Yeah. It's building that strong culture and kind of having that buy-in from top to bottom. And that takes time. Yeah, no, it is. And so I have to say, I mean, you must love the corporate world because, you know, you were at your previous employer for, I think, 20 some years, obviously now you're with Technip FMC, but when looking at LinkedIn, I think you're involved with something else, but what do you like about corporations? Because I think a lot of, there's two different types of folks. There's some that's like, I can't breathe unless I'm working for myself, but then there's some that like sort of the structure and, you know, the growth of a business and corporation. And can you kind of touch on that? Because I always find that interesting for folks that like yourself. Yeah. So I'll take a weird approach to this. Okay. So you know, the reason I got a chemi is because at the time, chemical engineering degrees had the highest acceptance rate to med school. Ah. And I was going to go to med school and I was going to get an MD, PhD, and I was going to cure cancer and save the world. Okay. Have you done that yet? You know, it turns out I didn't like school that much. And that's how I ended up in the oil field. (laughs) Yeah. Likewise. (laughs) So no. And part of it has to do with And I just love seeing things get done and Mm -hmm. no other industry gets stuff done kind of day to day, the same way that oil and gas does, in my opinion. I agree. Like I like the thought of scale impact, right? And there's elements of control when you work for yourself and you've got a startup that you control, you drive and you create impact. But when you're at some of the larger organizations, your ability to scale impact Mm is big. You know, again, maybe this sounds idealistic and naive, but the ability to make a positive impact on those boots that are on the ground, right? If I'm in there and I'm battling for right, the right resources, the right assets, the right streamlined process to make everyone's job better. Because I'll tell you, you know, to this day, my best memories were out on a frat crew in South Texas, right? With my guys from Alice, Texas and San Diego, Texas, working frat jobs, right? And so I carry that with me because they were great to me that I'm fighting for them and folks like them every day and trying to make their jobs better and more sustainable. Because you know, you mentioned that the 14, 15, 16 downturn was kind of a wake-up call for a lot of us that maybe started in the early 2000s of, man, things can be bad. We'd heard it from you know, the guys that worked in the 70s and 80s. But man, you know, that doesn't ever happen. It never happens till you live it. <laughs> exactly. Now we've all lived two of them in the past six years, eight years, right? Yeah. So, it's a wake-up call. So everything that you can do in a big corporation to set it up to be sustainable through that next downturn is helping those guys at the front line who helped me when I started. So I view it as scalable impact and paying it back to the guys who helped me on day one. Wow. I love that. I think that is such a selfless perspective and even just purpose as to why you do what you do. And speaking of what you do, seeing as most of your experience has been on the production side of things, I would imagine, you know, it maybe I'm sure you do, you kind of keep an eye on you know the market and how much we're producing in the US. And it's just, you know, it's a topic of discussion regularly. I think we started this year around 11.6 in terms of, you know, crude oil production and are now, I think we're hovering close to 12. I think 11.9 was what the last report said from the EIA. Do you see I mean, I guess, do you see us being able to ramp up production? And again, you can give a very generic answer. You can say, you know what, I'm not, you know, either way, but I just, it's interesting because what we're faced with now with high commodity prices, which is affecting everything, 
you know, demand is outrunning supply and, you know, all the operators saying, we're going to be capitally disciplined and we're going to, you know, we're not going to ramp up drilling operations and everything like that. But do you see much in terms of like, and more so on the technology and the increasing efficiency side, do you see us being able to kind of ramp up production here, you know, in the lower 48 or what's your kind of thoughts around that? I take it in two parts, right? So, I mean, obviously the wells and the production that is drilled is fracked and producing today. There are things you can do, I'll say plan of playing at the margins to tweak those up, right? You know, so optimization on artificial lift, workover practices, optimizing facilities performance, right? So there are things that you can do on the margin and you can squeeze percents out of the base, right? And the base is big, right? It's, it's really big. So I think that's one thing that we can do that adds percents and that starts to ease some of the, and it's not huge capital investments, and it's not necessarily victim of some of the same supply chain as the adding new wells and new production. So mm. it's an all of the above, right? I hate people that, I don't hate anyone, but <laughs> I hate the idea that there's an answer. Sure. Right? So to get through this, it's a little bit of everything, and everyone does their part, right? It's the optimization, the existing production base. It's finding ways to implement new technologies and efficiencies in that capital intensive part of drilling, completing and bringing new wells online too. Mm-hmm. I like your answer with sort of the holistic approach. It's not this or that, it's this and that, and this and everything else that you know we've got going on right now, which there's a lot of exciting stuff. And so, which I want to talk about, but first I want to give a big shout out to Tony Munsur at Technique FMC. He actually made the introduction. I couldn't be more pleased with his support for the podcast and Technique FMC. So being that you've been with Technique FMC for, I think it's been a little over a year and maybe a year and a half or so, have you had the chance to work much with Tony or? So mostly virtually, because I'm still sitting up in Denver and you know, Tony's down in Houston. So, yeah. you know, it's virtual meetings and, you know, calls every once in a while. So, you know, we don't get to spend as much FaceTime as we would like to, but, you know, hopefully that as all the pandemic relieves and everyone starts to travel more, I get down to Houston, there'll be more and more of that. Nice. Well, I had lunch with him a few weeks back and he spoke very highly of you and your initiative of championing your latest technology in the market known as emission. From my understanding, this technology essentially optimizes production facilities to increase oil production while also helping reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which I would love for you to talk about because I think it's fascinating and something that could really move the needle for the market. Yeah, no. So I'm glad to talk. It's kind of a corporate tenant that we started with is we want to help customers address their sustainability challenges, right? What are they doing to reduce their scope one and scope two? You know, from the brilliant minds behind the scenes and all the R&D, we'd identified this opportunity in association with some of our separation technology team that, hey, you know, there's, again, playing on the margins. There are tweaks you can make to optimize your production facility Mm -hmm. that change fairly minor variables and push the oil that you're producing closer to takeaway specification. So you make the flare and flash gas reduced and you put more of that volume that would have been going out the flare or cycling back through a vapor recovery unit into your sales line. So you see incremental Uh sales in the order of, you know, half a percent to maybe 3% depending on conditions but you see reduction in that low pressure flash flare volume of, you know, up to 60, 65%. Wow. And so, and I kind of did a little research on it. It appears that it plays on read vapor pressure 
and kind of meeting a target, which helps optimize that. Can you, for the listeners who may not understand what that is on a very sort of high level, could you explain how that works or how that ties into like why that would optimize production? Yeah. So I'll do the best I can to explain it. And I'm not a chemistry or physics professor. So everyone bear with me and send me notes if I mess this up horribly bad. <laughs> I don't know if my audience is much of that, but either way, I think so. I think we're all speaking the same language here. Well, cool. So revapor pressure, it's a proxy for how volatile the oil is. Okay. Right. So the higher the number, the slightly more volatile that oil is. So most facilities have some sort of agreement with their midstream partner that says, you're not going to send me any oil that has an RVP or a volatility value greater than, let's say 10. Ah, okay. Right. If you send it more than 10, I'm shutting you in. I'm not taking that. Okay. So in order to avoid getting shut in or rejected deliveries, most facilities run a fairly significant safety margin away from, you know, what that shut in volume is, you know, that 10, right? They run it at six. And what we can do is leveraging the existing instrumentation and knowledge from that facility, we can identify and implement control points and changes in the process, temperature, pressure, to move that six value up to say a nine or a nine and a half, right? So you're still meeting all your obligations, you're playing the rules, you're not gaming anyone, but what you are doing is taking some of that volatility that would have manifested itself as flash and flare gas in your facility, and you're converting it into liquid hydrocarbon that you're putting down the sales line. Ah, fascinating. So with emission, is this instrumentation that gets added onto existing production facilities, you gather the data, you use that data to then optimize, or is it strictly based off existing data that's readily available on, say, a production facility? Yeah, so probably 80 to 95% of the facilities out there have most of the data points that we need. And what we're doing is we're bringing an edge device, an edge computing device out there to your facility, tying into your instrumentation and using our algorithms to calculate that read vapor pressure and process conditions, you know, five times a second, and then push the right control set points back to process equipment Mm. to get that value up to that nine, nine and a half, or whatever the customer and we agree to is the target, right? Whatever Uh. the risk tolerance is, right? And the nice thing about this is, you know, some people say, well, you know, I mean, I could send a guy out there and tweak this set point or that set point. Well, yeah, you're going to send them out when it's raining and you need to tweak it, you know, just a little bit. You're going to send them out both day and night as you get daytime heating and nighttime cooling. So by having it, again, away from sticks and spreadsheets, by getting to the digital and that automated approach, the optimization can be continuous across, you know, different well conditions and different ambient conditions and deliver that most value in terms of ESG and free cash flow to the operator. Wow. I mean, that screams value. And it doesn't sound like, it's not like you're doing a complete overhaul in a production facility where they have to shut down for a week to get everything installed, right? Like this is something that you could kind of tack on as operations are existing type of deal. Yeah. I mean, there's a scalable value piece to it, right? We can control and tie into existing process equipment to their heater treater, to the variable frequency drive on their vapor recovery unit, we can control the existing stuff. And that's 
man, that's essentially plug and play. Wow. Or, you know, sometimes the higher value involves adding additional process equipment like a cooler or maybe line heaters. And those may require short shutdowns, but they can generally be aligned with, you know, routine maintenance and be done within a day or two. Gotcha. What would you say the biggest challenge is, you know, for you, whether it's speaking with clients or just, you know, implementation, what would you say the biggest limiter is for just like massive scale and adoption? So I would say the biggest one is the facilities teams, customers that I've talked to have so much on their plate, Mm. right? Their teams got leaned down during COVID, drilling pops back up. They're dealing with supply chain issues and personnel issues. So just finding the time to get on their calendar and to explain something that is a little bit of a novel concept, right? You know, it just takes time to build that momentum because they're so busy, right? I've had conversations with customers in Denver and Midland and Houston. They're all like, and it seems good, but I've got to get these facilities built. I've got to get this turnaround done. I've got to do X, Y, and Z. So we just slide down the list a little bit. So it's building that momentum and finding a spot in their calendar where we can talk about here's the value, here's how we can do a trial and move towards scale. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. What would you say the future looks like with regards to production optimization? Is there sort of a grand vision you know, type of thing or what is the North Star for whether it's you personally or within the technique, FMC, what does that look like? So I think the big vision is we look at the pace of innovation that we've seen in drilling and completions over the past you know, 10 to 15 years how does that begin to flow downstream into technology adoption, process revision, and optimization in facilities space, mm. right? And so we think about what does it look like years from now? Most of the facilities we have today you know, have tanks, and tanks are one of the biggest sources of venting and emissions for customers that gains the most attention from regulators, from environmentally conscious folks. And so we think that evolving facility design and execution to be tankless, to take better advantage of electrical or electric options as opposed to pneumatic or field gas devices, right? There are things that we can do to modernize, digitize the facility of the future that you know makes it as slick as your Tesla is compared to you know the 1977 Ford pickup I started driving. <laughs> right. I keep hearing more and more whatever can be electrified will be electrified at some point in the future in which opens up other obviously topics of discussion, but no, I think you're absolutely right. And so I guess what's interesting is again, talking about the future, I know, so I'm in the upstream side. So, you know, drilling operations and the goal is always to get as many people out of the field as possible from an HSE perspective, but also bringing people into the office that can, instead of manage one rig, can essentially say manage two or three at a time through again automation and you know just technology and innovation. Is that an initiative too within the production side of things and production facilities? I don't know how many you know folks are on a typical production facility, but are you starting to see now where you're able to get people out of the field and do their job sort of at scale within a controlled environment like an office? Yeah, I mean, so you definitely see a lot of folks have moved towards a kind of a central remote operating center for a lot of their facilities. But what you get is when you have the dated infrastructure that everyone has, getting it digital and into that remote operating center where you can make the best decisions and optimize, you know what, I know exactly what valve or what replacement part I need. 
So I'm going to give my guy, you know, I'm going to pre-issue it from the warehouse in permit and give him direct instructions rather than him having to go out the facility and say, oh, you know, it's a valve. Well, I don't have that part. I got to go back in. Well, you know, we don't have that at the warehouse. So now I got to drive to Odessa to get it. Mm. Right. So it's windshield time for people out there driving. It's exposure, you know, again, kind of coming back to harp on that tankless vision. Yeah. Like, does anyone like to go up on frack tanks? <laughs> Not <Yeah>. so much. <laughs> right. Storage and stabilization tanks are even worse than frack tanks. Right. Right. So as much as we can get rid of that, we reduce HSE exposure. So I think there's a manifold of opportunities for improving HSE and making better use of people's time and knowledge. Right. No, that's true. And it's funny you mentioned frack tank, you know, as a rig hand and a mud engineer, I spent many times on a frack tank, you know, with a stick, right? Yeah. I actually had the pleasure of having a gentleman on from Riot Wireless and they created a very cool, it's essentially, you can strap your tanks, but it's a piece of technology that screws on top of a tank and through, I guess, I want to say lasers because that's just like the simple term, but it can read it and it's quick. And what you can do is monitor that real time. And so it's a very fascinating piece of technology and they use it all throughout California. That's where it was initially designed, but it's like, you know, completely weatherproof and roughneck proof and they've beat the living junk out of it. It's something, cause a lot of that stuff that is very sensitive can easily, whether it's weather or whether it's just, you know, a roughneck can probably break just about anything, but it's, you know, talking about, you know, tankless, but even then just the way we even strap tanks still is mm-hmm. very, you know, 19, 50s, if not earlier, like I remember having a dipstick, a wooden pole, but the wooden pole had three inches missing at the bottom. And so you had to account for that because it was wooden. And every time you smash it on the bottom of the tank. And so it's like, how accurate is the data? And then that comes into data quality. It's like junk in, junk out. Absolutely. You know, in an interesting way, all ties together. So, but we still use or do things in such a, you know, an old fashion. It's just sometimes mind blowing, but it's a funny conversation. What excites you most about your job there, Bill? So I'll take a page from a couple people and, you know, maybe Chris Wright says, talks a lot about this, but you know, what we do as an industry is vital for humanity, right? And again, I know that sounds naive and high-minded and preachy, but it is, right? But there are things that we can continue to do to be better and smarter to your point, Justin, you know, to help make the companies and the people that we work with a little better insulated against the next downturn. Yeah. Right. And so by being more sustainable, by taking advantage of digital and technology innovations, it buffers the operators and their financial situation and their ability to keep drilling through commodity cycles, which positively impacts all the service company and the people that work with service companies and the service companies that work with service companies. So by being more sustainable and more effective and efficient in execution as a system, we all help ourselves. And that's what excites me is being a part of that. Again, back to how do I scale the impact of what I'm doing to Mm -hmm. make sure that as an industry, we're better positioned through the next downturn and better positioned for years to come to continue to support the energy needs of the world. Yeah. It's not going away. It's not. And that's one of the topics that I'm quite passionate about is it's one thing to be here in the US and say, okay, we need to, you know, tweak this and, you know, we need to try and reduce our, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and stop flaring. But the reality is, is there's, you know, and this, I don't know why I always remember this number, there's about 850 million people throughout the world that don't even have access to clean water. 
And I think companies like yourselves, you know, say Wood McKinsey, there's tons and tons and tons of companies, a lot of these global centric companies. I think ultimately, and going back to earlier in the conversation, it's not this or that, it's this and that. And what I mean by that is everyone within the energy industry on all walks of energy really need to understand that, like, I think the ultimate goal really should be to provide energy to the entire world and power the world. Because I think once we can get to a point where we can, and then who knows when this will be, but if everyone in this world can have access to affordable, abundant, and reliable energy, I think then that's when we can really move the needle and become more efficient and get to a place where we can help save the planet. Because right now, there's still people that don't have access to that much energy who would be willing to do anything. But these places with, you know, throughout the world need to get to a point where we're at. And again, this could be who knows when, but the more that we can do here in the U.S. and in, in part of you know, countries and nations that have adopted it and who are doing things extremely efficiently, let's deploy that to the rest of the world. Because that's really, when you talk about humanity and civilization, like that's what it's all about. No, it's very concrete for me. My wife volunteered and was in the Peace Corps for two years. And oh, I went nice. down periodically and spent time with her community in Panama, which was you know, very far back away from infrastructure, right? People walk miles to get clean water, right? Oh. People, you know, they burn leaves for heat and to cook their food, right? So what yeah. you're talking about, Justin, is very concrete and real in my mind. Wow. No, I love it. And that's what, again, I just think that sort of that mentality, instead of us against them, it needs to be us with them. And it's, we is greater than me. And in oil and gas, it's been a tough road. It's, you know, we've a lot of times been us against the world, but I think if we approach it with kindness and empathy towards everyone else, I think we could certainly be a big help and just making sure all, you know, all these initiatives get played out. And, but yeah, it's a good conversation. I think there's some good things happening within oil and gas and especially in energy. But the way I like to close out is, again, just kind of ask a couple more questions, not really related to business, but more to kind of peel the onion or peel Bill's onion, if you will. But do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success on an ongoing basis? So, you know, this will be silly and you'll hear this, right? I mean, I've got to step away from my desk, right? I take the dog for a walk, you know, just get out and clear my head. And then this will sound silly, but it's related for important conversations, like I like room to get up and pace because I find that actually being able to step, to wave my hands, you know, while I'm on a conference call, while I'm talking to people, creates yeah. more energy in me that comes through those conversations. I get better ideas. So, you know, I think the kind of, oh, you know, thou must sit at the desk in front of the camera and, you know, be super professional all the time. You know, sometimes it's okay to get up and move and be excited about what you do. Yeah. And let I'm- yourself do that. Yeah. No, I love that. It's funny because a lot of times if I'm at home or even in the office, if I'm on a call, I'll catch myself and I don't even really realize that I'm doing it, but I'll pace. I'll even go in the hallways. But yeah, I think you even often hear, you know, say high performing CEOs or whatever, if you kind of get a glimpse into what they do on a daily basis, a lot of them take meetings while they walk or kind of, you know, to touch on that point, it's just like that energy creates instead of being bottled up in this environment you know, in these four walls kind of, you know, boxed in. Yeah. I think it says a lot and I don't, you know, I'm sure there's research on it, but I would be you know willing to bet that it does have a positive impact on the outcome of, you know, someone's delivery of what they're trying to communicate. Well, one last thing, and you may have pretty much answered it, but is there anything about yourself that not many people know about anything interesting, any kind of good hidden hobbies that you'd like to unleash to the podcast world? 
Man, so, you know, one, it's not very exciting, right? But I love to read biographies for historical fictions and especially ones that, I don't want to say subvert, but shed new light on kind of historical context. So one of my favorite books oh. is The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, right? We've all gone through high school or college history classes and we view the history of the 19th and 20th century through the lens of colonization and whatever else. But reading it, you know, in the prize, for example, you know, shines a whole new light on why things happen and how things happen. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, again, you carry back to work of, you know, well, maybe if I take half a step back, I'll think about this in a different perspective rather than how it's being framed. And we'll find a new and better way to do this. Ah, interesting. So, and I was going to ask you, what book would you recommend? But it sounds like the prize is the one. That's fairly standard. Yeah, I think probably a lot of people in the industry have read that one. But you know, one of the other ones, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, I believe. Okay. Kind of, you know, how do we end up in the civilization that we're in from a different context? Again, really interesting. Awesome. No, that's really cool. I've not been great at history, but I do think that it's important to understand history because there's it's sort of everything's cyclical and, and history tends to repeat itself with just a bit of a perhaps different attire <laughs> that it's wearing. Yep, but absolutely. No, that's cool. Well, hey, this has been a fantastic conversation. Bill, what's the best way if folks are interested on e-mission or anything that we spoke about today? What's the best way for people to reach out to get to know more about you or some of the stuff that Technip FMC has to offer? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely they can go to our website and technipfmc.com or feel free to reach out to me at bill.melton at technipfmc.com. Glad to set up follow-up conversations and demonstrate what we can do to help operators be more sustainable. Excellent. Well, thank you for what you do. And thanks to Technip FMC for all the hard work and just everything that you're doing on the technology front within your organization. And for everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.